0: Hello, I'm Adam Cano, a co-vice chair of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. I'm joined by Shelley Spector, a veteran public relations practitioner and lecturer. Shelley founded the Museum of Public Relations in 1997. It's a 501c3 chartered by the New York Board of Regents, and she joins us today by phone from New York to talk about a new exhibit. Shelley, welcome back to Update One.
1: Thank you for having me, Adam.
0: Before we talk about the new exhibit, can you kind of remind our listeners a little bit about the the five Ws of the Museum of Public Relations? <laughs> what it is and why and all that.
1: Okay, sure. Um, well, I can start with when uh, the museum. The idea for the museum was uh, given to us by Edward Bernays himself whom uh, we were, my husband and I were very good friends with. Uh, he was around 101, and I asked him what he was going to do with all the stuff that was in his house, you know, these old 8 by 10 pictures of him, himself with Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, Calvin Coolidge, et cetera. And he said, I'd like to create a museum, and uh, he asked us to create a museum in New York for Public Relations, and uh, that it would be the first one. He would, when he passed, give us uh, the founding materials for the, for the exhibit, and um, here we are 22 years later, and um, we have a nice space, downtown Manhattan, that uh, remains the only Museum of Public Relations in the world.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And so, what can we learn from the past, especially as it pertains to things like messaging and audiences?
1: Okay. Well, I, I think one of the most interesting things is that, um, we, you know, the, the museum is set up sort of like um, in Edward Bernays and Doris Fleischman Bernays office of 1919. And you won't find any electronics in here other than a, a lamp and uh, there's an old telephone, there's an old typewriter, there's uh, a souvenir light bulb from uh, from Thomas Edison. And uh, you realize that a uh, hundred years ago, people who were practicing, which included, you know, just really two people, Bernays and uh, Ivy Lee, uh, they didn't have uh, the internet. And uh, in a pre-digital age, what really powered the profession was not obviously social media, but was ideas and and brilliant campaigns and strategies. So Bernays was the first to go out and actually research his audiences before he created a campaign. Uh, And he did this because he was influenced to a large extent by his double uncle, Sigmund Freud. So he had a real interest social psychology and understood people's subconscious, understood their insecurities, how to appeal to them, uh, to their egos. And uh, so here's here he is, you know, the inventor, so-called, of this profession. And he's coming out uh, and talking about the psychological aspects of, of his various audiences. And that was very, very uh, considered scientific back 100 years ago. So um, and then he would actually measure the impact of the campaigns and tie it into sales. So the the things that Bernays was, was up to 100 years ago were far more advanced than I think people to this day imagine. And that's why it's such a delight when people come in here and, and they hear these stories and they look at all these materials and say, my God, um, you know, in so many ways the profession has changed, but in so many ways it has not
0: yeah i I was going to ask about that a little bit later but I'm curious about the reactions of young people today when they come into the museum and see this i mean in a sense, it must be public relations in a very very pure form
1: mm-hmm. exactly it's it's really the fundamentals is what i is what I like to teach and um you know I have them sometimes sitting by this computer from 1905, uh, and a, f- a candlestick phone from 1904, and a telegraph. Say, this is all you have. And uh, you are now responsible for putting out some news on behalf of a client. How do you get this press release in your typewriter out to the editor's office? How do you do that? It's not hooked into other typewriters. There's no networking involved. And they really have to think this through. It's amazing how this generation, which is the first to grow up entirely on the Internet, cannot conceive of a world that is uh, non-digital. And so we have to talk about how do you create something that's newsworthy enough that editors are going to want to run with it or at least interview your client. But how do you do something as simple as getting a press release from your typewriter and over to an editor's office or sometimes you put it in an envelope and you put an address on it and these are things that the kids have no idea about. These very simple matters that you and I kind of grew up with and fortunately don't have to do anymore but um, the kids are really struck by the lack of technology.
0: This podcast originates from the Broadcast Operations Center of the National Press Club and we're here in the National Press Building and I always like to tell guests that one of the unique things about this building is it has its own zip code, and mm-hmm. that that dates from a pre-internet age when you know, everything came in and out of this building and all the news bureaus that are here in addition to the club itself, that everything that came in and out of here, press releases, videotape, mm-hmm. audio mm-hmm. tape, media kits, um, that everything moved in a obviously pre-internet physical way.
1: Right, absolutely. I mean, um, even a hundred years ago, not everybody had a telephone right? So even if you were lucky to have one on your desk, like we are here, this phone is a candlestick model from 1904, if you made phone calls to the editors, you're not sure that they would even have a, a telephone number. And um, it was a whole different world that depended entirely on brain power and your creativity or imagination, doing something different. I mean, everything that Ivy Lee and Bernays and even Paul Garrett and, um Uh, Arthur Page they were doing things for the very first time they had to be very inventive and I I think that when the young people come in here and and they hear about these campaigns they find out this concept of newsworthiness which I feel today is very much lacking in in the colleges and uh, and even in the workplace
0: I want to get back to, to to that perhaps at the end as we talk about kind of what to derive from all of this, especially given that um, a large percentage of National Press Club members are uh, communicator members, so they're not working journalists. They are on that public relations side. So let's talk a little bit about the museum's newest feature. So this okay. is a collection of more than 50 items related to Harold Burson. So mm-hmm. um, who was he or who is he and what items are on display?
1: Okay. Um, Harold was a, a fascinating guy. He is a fascinating guy. Uh, he's 98 and a half. I've been uh, interviewing him since 2002. He um, was a prolific writer from a very early age. When He always wanted to be a journalist. Uh, when he got into school, they immediately skipped him two grades. He started working at the uh, Memphis Commercial Appeal when he was 11. He paid his way through college, through old Miss, um, when he, you know at the age of fifteen, and he was a stringer for uh, his hometown paper, which by the way he 's you know relocating back to Memphis next week and wow. I'm, you know I was kidding with him that they 're going to hire him again to be a correspondent um, and eventually he joined the service and uh, after the war, he had been working for the information department and after the war they hired him to report on the Nuremberg trials. So he wrote the radio scripts that were read by Armed Forces Radio, and we have copies of them here in the museum. It's unbelievable writing, unbelievable, and, you know, such vivid descriptions of the defendants who were people, you know, the Nazis that you and I know too well. And, uh, and, you know, here Harold himself is, is a, a Jewish guy and, and writing about these and seeing the, the films that the army started showing as uh, evidence of what the Nazis were up to. And uh, a few years ap- after he came home, he decided he wanted to open a PR firm. A lot of the young men who were in the service came back to New York, around 200 of them in the late 40s and opened up one-man PR firms. This is something that, that you know we typically don't think about, but several of the names that we hear today, like Finn and Golan and Fleischman, they all started from being uh, public relations experts during the war and they came out and uh, started their own agencies. Burson, uh, like the others, started. He had a desk in a uh, client's office. This was an engineering company that he had worked for briefly before the war. And uh, he hired uh, this girl that he had been dating, eventually married her, named Betty, uh, then made a second hire. and, And soon he was contacted by an ad agency in Chicago, the Marsteller Agency. And they asked him to uh, do some publicity for a company called Rockwell International, at which fortunately Burson uh, knew of and he understood how to write about engineering because he had represented an engineering company before the war. And uh, he achieved you know, incredible success right out of the gate. He got a three-page spread in Life magazine and uh, that over Thanksgiving week. And uh, Bill Marcell was just so impressed with him. They started talking about merging the two companies in 1952. And in 1953, um, the merger of the two companies, and this was the first time an ad agency and a PR firm are getting together. So this was the beginning, you could say, of integrated marketing, although they didn't call it that back then.
0: Wow. So, uh, as you said, Mr. Burson is now 98 years old, so it must have been very special to have him present for the exhibit's opening.
1: Oh, my God. What we decided to do was, um, unlike our other events at the museum where we, you know, open it up to everybody, we just decided to have young people. So we had uh, summer interns who were here from all over the world working in the city during the summer, and we had students come. So we had about 100 young people and, you know, having their opportunity to take pictures. Everybody loves taking selfies with Harold, and, you know, we had to make it so it was group shots. But uh, but before the picture taking, we we didn't plan for Harold to be talking. We didn't want to put that pressure on him. Uh, but I saw he was itching to get something out, and so I, I took one question from the audience, which was, uh, uh, how did he feel about uh, human nature after covering the Nuremberg trials? And Harold just started talking for 40 minutes nonstop, and he was entertaining, lucid, absolutely wonderful. And uh, you can you can look at the tape that we made. It's on our Facebook page. Um just inspiring, uh, and he was talking directly to the young people in the audience about the, the skills they needed to acquire. Uh, I thought he was going to say that writing was the number one skill, but no, he, taught, he said it was networking. He said it <laughs> was, especially when you're young, make as many contacts as you possibly can, and those will grow exponentially.
0: What was the reaction of the young people to his uh, commentary?
1: Oh, just loved it! Smiling, uh, everybody was was uh, you know had their phones out and they were taping him, of course. <laughs> of, and, of course, and, and and you know and tweeting about it. So. so
0: when 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 he saw these you know fifty items or so on display, was there was there one that in particular, that he gravitated towards? Or did he have any sort of feedback on seeing this part of his history and, and the history uh, of all of us who work in public relations? He, um,
1: he, he will go to any one of those pieces. I mean, I, I'm walking around the, the museum right now. For instance, he has the Coke can from when he did the launch for New Coke and, and uh, Coca-Cola had uh, created put his name on it it's a share a coke with Harold. Uh, he he loves the press release which is framed from nineteen fifty three announcing the formation of Bursamore Stellar and it's um it's all blue type of course because it's um, a carbon copy, you remember those? Yeah. And uh, he typed it was from his typewriter. And so the you know uh, he, he's sitting there with this on his lap, and uh, the kids are nearby reading it, and uh, it was just so crisply written, loved it. He even has uh, quotes from himself in here, and it was one and three-quarter pages long, and it's just uh, just a remarkable piece of, of our history. And uh, he has several photos of himself Sign photos with, with uh, Reagan and uh, Jimmy Carter and, and Clinton. There's a handwritten letter from Ronald Reagan. I mean, you know, you get, of course, you know, typewritten letters from presidents, but this is the only one that I've seen from Reagan that is just a, a personal letter that, um, uh, you know, that he handwrote. You know, Sincerely Ron, you know, just like he was getting it from his, you know, his friend, from his army buddy, you know. They were very good friends. And so from these 50 objects, you learn a lot about the guy. And, uh, you know, that's what's true about all the objects in here. The the objects in here just tell stories about different people, different periods of time, different events over the course of history, and um, I think it's it's very inspiring, even if you're not in public relations.
0: What's your favorite artifact?
1: My favorite artifact is a an article in Fortune magazine from March 1939 that is the only is the first and last time Fortune magazine covered the PR industry and is a very wonderful positive, respectful story, as if they were covering the legal field or um, technology. And the uh, the headline is, The Public Is Not Damned. On the contrary, under the mysterious head of, quote, public relations, the modern businessman finds that he must either cajole it, satisfy it, or lead it. And uh, the article goes on to describe... With pictures, different public relations activities from companies around around the country, and uh, and to me, this is one of the most valuable pieces that we have here because it shows that at least during that decade in the 30s, public relations was not just thriving, but it had uh, um, amassed a terrific, terrific following from uh, from CEOs. And uh, that's when public relations agencies really started taking off during this period of time. And um, I'd love you to see it. I I wish this was um, we had a TV camera here (laughs) because I'm flipping through this article and it's just not to be believed. People come here and they um, they they shoot pictures of this. They also have in here fortune went to the trouble of hiring a cartoonist to illustrate funny things about public relations and uh, one of them is uh, two uh, two receptionists by a switchboard and it says, uh, ask that public relations man what to say when a customer asks, hey babe, how about Thursday night? It's also a reflection of, you know, the sexism that was just so pervasive during that time that even women didn't realize
0: it was going on. Absolutely. So, as you walk through that museum and you see those artifacts and you you understand how they reflected, like you said, the the sexism and other other uh, aspects of the age. But you also try to derive something for now, as the young uh-huh. people did when they were there with with uh, with Mr. Burson. You know. What do you take away? What's the one bottom line that you take away from not just this new exhibit, from, but, but from the museum in general, you know, for the benefit of communicator members here at the National Press Club, journalists with whom we interact with every day, you know, the students that you and I teach at our respective universities, you know, what makes preserving the past still so important in the realm of public relations?
1: I think that I, mean, I have a lot of answers to that, but one of the most important things that I feel is that um, we see people here from all over the world, and I I, I think that what they sense these are practitioners from uh, you know head firms Slovakia last week um, uh, South Korea uh, Monday somebody's coming up from Brazil everybody feels a community to the worldwide practice of public relations because it all started really in New York, uh, you know, two blocks away from here. And uh, I think that, that the all the exhibits here together kind of pull everybody back to a common history so that we all feel a sense of, of professional community. These are our professional ancestors here and they did such wonderful things. Not just the, the public relations professionals per se, But uh, we also include in here social activists, you know, for instance, Frederick Douglass is is in here, you know, people that you wouldn't normally look at as public relations people, but they advocated for social justice and equality, and they use public relations strategies and and tactics to get the word out and to be persuasive. So um, that's something that's a very valuable takeaway for people, uh, is to see how public relations can be used for the public good.
0: Shelley, thank you so much for your time.
1: My pleasure, Adam. Thank you very much.
0: Shelley Spector is a PR practitioner and lecturer, as well as founder of the Museum of PR. You can learn more at prmuseum.org. For Update 1, I'm Adam Cano. Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to Update One Podcast, that's update the number one podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One.